Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Charlotte Walsh. Charlotte is CEO of Jade Software Corporation and has been in that role since January 2018. Prior to joining Jade, she's led global businesses in health technology and packaging and print. She brings with her a strong focus on customers and on building high-performing teams. Charlotte's also an experienced company director, including current roles on the board of New Zealand Trade and Enterprise and the Dodd Wall Centre for Quantum and Photonic Technologies. Outside of work, she's got three children and is an avid fan of new technologies and Jeeps. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about Charlotte's career journey today. Morena, Charlotte, and thank you very much for joining me. Morena, Anna, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, really well. Thank you, enjoying this uh, another, what hopefully looks like to be a sunny day here in Christchurch. So Charlotte, the first question I had for you is to take you a little way back and think about when you were a child or, or a teenager, what careers did you dream about or, or aspire to? I have, ever since I was little, so I'm a huge science geek and I started watching Star Trek when I was very little and also the Star Watch program, sort of an astronomy program when I was about four or so on TV. And so I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, so very much into that. There was nothing else, just an astronaut. And when I was about nine, I sent a letter to NASA asking what I needed to, to do at school and what I needed to tick off in order to be an astronaut. So they very kindly sent me back a big envelope with a whole lot of stuff in there about space and being an astronaut and those kind of things. So I created an, okay, these are the things I need to do at high school in order to be ready to be on my way to being an astronaut. So it formed a, that drive um, or that formed a huge drive in terms of my focus through high school and even into the start of university, actually. Wonderful. Um, well, I wish I'd completely followed through, but, but you know, but it was good nonetheless. It was more than a, it was more than a one week dream before you moved, before you moved on to something else. Anyway, and it must be that at that time there weren't that many female astronauts, so you were doing that without necessarily role models that looked like you. Universes now where actually there has been an all female space crew up in space. Yeah. Interesting. That was something that you still thought, yes, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I think my parents were always very much. They were never. They never spoke of barriers or things to watch out for. In that sense, it was always just go do it. Wonderful. And then, if I'm correct, I think you studied then maths and physics through university. And what was it about that really appealed? Yes, you're absolutely right. And I've always, I just love maths. Maths is relaxing and intriguing and, yeah, and just fun. And physics, obviously, in terms of that application, if you like. So I know that's that super geeky part of me, but I love physics as well. And so it's such a pleasure these days to be able to be on the the governing group for the Dodd Wall Centre. So, yeah, it's just, that it was fun stuff. I really enjoyed it. And it was part of 
also tied to that whole thing of, well, if I want to be an astronaut, then I probably need to get some really good qualifications in maths and, and um, you know, science and probably physics. And then I did, um, as part of that, I did astrophysics and stuff like that as well. Yeah, that was, it was all part of that sort of push towards the, the Star Trek sort of boundary, if you like. Great. And as you said, uh, unfortunately, that didn't quite follow through. You didn't end up being an astronaut, I have to say. New Zealand's not necessarily the best place to start that career journey from. So what then happened in terms of the first few years of your career? When I finished uh, my master's in physics at university, I was at the crossroads in terms of do I carry on and do doctorate or do I go and do something else? And I think I just got myself a little bit washed out and a little bit out of love with physics at that point in time. And it's like, you know what, I just want to do something else. So I'll go and get a job for a, a couple of months and then head off overseas at the end of the year. So I got a job in a packaging factory as, the, as a lab assistant uh, in the quality lab. And actually that was, so that was, I'd worked in, you know, factories before, obviously during school holidays and those sort of things. But this was first time sort of permanently in that environment. And it was just, it was great because it was so diverse. There were so many interesting things going on. And it was um, in that that first year, the woman who was the quality manager about six or eight months in, she decided she wanted to go and find another job. And so I applied for her job. And, and it was interesting because it was that first sort of instance where people said, no, you can't do this. You're not experienced enough. Or you're not this. Or you're not that. And I said, yeah, but I know I can do it better than I understand this stuff. I understand where this is going. I'm excited by it. And I, can, I think I can do a really good job of it. So they brought some candidates through and I, I was persistent. And eventually, I think I was so persistent, I, I wore them down and they, eventually they gave me the job. <laughs> so, so persistence pays off. But I really enjoyed that role, not because I'm into like detail and process and so forth, but more because it was, it really gave me my first opportunity at leading through influence. So for example, at school and sports teams and things like that, having, I had had direct leadership roles. So, you know, you're, you're at the helm of something and there's a group of people who are looking for you to provide leadership. Whereas this is the first time where I wasn't the direct line leader, if you like. I was there influencing people to work a different way or to improve um, the way they're working or to connect with the customer in a different way. So I learned a lot about how to influence people through helping them understand the why, if you like, and to get them on board with an idea or with a, a goal in that sort of way. So that was really uh, interesting. And then along the way, about maybe two years in, the, the general manager of the site who went on to become the Australasian MD eventually, he had he brought a guy in, an organisational design expert, to have a look at his people and understand what things might look like in the future and what career paths might be. So I was very fortunate that he saw something um, in me and, and got me to have an interview with this guy. And out of that, I came, I'd been through this period through university of really not having any sort of leadership roles at all. And then being back in a leadership role in the workplace, it really got me thinking again. This guy particularly got me thinking. He said, where do you want to go? Is this, is this what you want to do? I said, no, actually. What do you want to do? I said, well, I really want to be the CEO. And he's like, I said, I know that sounds crazy. I wouldn't be that. It's okay, cool. What do you need to do to get there? And I said, ah. So if you like what I kind of, I reflected, if this sounds a bit geeky or a bit childish perhaps. I've always been a planful kind of a person. My planfulness around what do I need to become an astronaut, sort of I, I brought that back into this. What do I need to be a CEO? Okay, well, what does that timeline look like? What do I need to do at various stages? And I mapped it out and then on with. Yeah, and so that really helped me chart a course and a, a reason for learning things or doing things for the next sort of 10 to 15 years in some ways. What, you know, it played out in one way or another, sort of vicariously or purposefully. 
Mm, and for me, interesting about that, almost that kind of one conversation, how that can spark actually that that might have been latent, that thought, actually, no, leadership, that's something I can do, I'm good at. And what was it then is about being a CEO or, or taking the lead? You said you'd done that through school as well. What was it about being a CEO that, that appealed to you? Uh, world domination. <laughs> Apart from that, that minor thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, it was just, I think it's that thing of, and it, and it continues to this day, but at, at the time it was that thing of, it feels really great to have this team of people around you who you're able to ignite and fire up in some way and then achieve a goal together. And they know a whole lot more about something than I do, but I can galvanise them and help give them a, a direction, if you like, to, to solve something. I found the idea of that then really appealing from the work I was doing at the time, and it continues right through to now. It's that whole thing of, you know, how do you set a goal and then equip ourselves? How do I lead a team to equip itself to be able to achieve that goal? And unlocking people as well as other opportunities to be able to achieve that goal. And that's really what sort of spins my wheels all the way through till now. And one thing that I find often enough in speaking with women is that they do have career goals and dreams and ambitions, but that often that being ambitious is maybe not always seen as a positive thing as a woman. I was wondering what your experience of that might have been. Uh, yeah, so I was just chatting with someone about that the other day, actually, um, because I remember when I was in that first you know, two to three years of my um, career and in the quality manager role. And I remember, you know, working with the guys, I think it was early on in that, and, and working with the guys in the factory around various problems and so forth and helping them in terms of starting to form their teams and team culture and um, ways of working. And, and one of them said to me one day, he said, I'm not sure that we all necessarily trust you. And I said, oh, gosh, why is that? Because, you know, I feel like I'm quite a sort of open, transparent, sort of and you know, relatively earnest kind of a person. I said, gosh, why is that? What does that mean? And they said, you just, you're really ambitious and we're not sure that, that, you're, that you, you know, are concerned for us for the long haul, that we're maybe just something on your way. And it's like, huh, gosh, that, that really gave me sort of a pause. It's like... Yeah, yeah, I am ambitious, but I'm not here in a kind of a stomp all over people to get somewhere. I want to leave legacies, if you like, with each thing I do. So I want to work on something together, genuinely achieve it, and they go, okay, cool. And now what next? But if I don't have a direction, then I'm, you know, then I end up, and I really believe in purpose and direction. If you don't have those, do you, you know, sort of, you can go without for maybe a short while, but eventually it'll get you in a mental health way, I think. And what I heard through there, it wasn't M ambition just for yourself, as you said, not for world domination. Instead, it yeah, was yeah. Am ambition for what the team, the business could achieve, that kind of broader purpose. Yeah, nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what was the journey then to the role that you're doing today as CEO of Jade? I moved through various roles in the packaging company over about 13 years. Um, so into from quality management to sales management, and then from that into manufacturing management and then operations management. So various steps along the way. And then there moved to another job for a short while as a um, general manager for a supplier for that for the packaging organization. And then took a break for um, about a year and had started family stuff. So intended to have one child and had twins, which was good fun. And then from there, looking to get back into the workforce. And this was in Auckland at the time, and families in Christchurch and thought, well, it'd be good to find that next thing sometime in the next few years in Christchurch. But it so happened that something showed up in Christchurch at that time, which was with Dynamic Controls as their GM for operations. I was successful in getting that role. 
And that was actually, I'll come back to them like that. I'll touch on that now because it was kind of interesting. The managing director at the packaging company had been a bit of a mentor of mine and he'd taken risks on me throughout my career. And and I learned a lot from that then to apply myself as I've gone through my journey. And he was also very um, strong on uh, creating a culture in order for an organisation to succeed in a sustainable way as opposed to just short-term wins and leaving carnage behind you. Uh, so very much about having a vision and the idea of purpose and so forth. So when I went for this role at, at Dynamic Controls, I remember being interviewed by the managing director for Asia Pacific and, and asking this question, uh, this sort of goes to this thing that we were touching on just um, earlier, the idea of going into a culture that maybe you realise is not that great and then how do you change it? And so what I was asking him was, well, so, okay, what's the vision for the company in the next 10 years? Where's the company going, why, going there? And his response was, well, oh, we don't, don't really know what we're going to be doing in 10 years' time. You know, uh, we could be dead by then. So, you know, so why would we have a vision for, for 10 years out? So, huh. oh, okay then. So, well, you're probably not going to be dead in five years' time. What's your vision for in five years' time? Oh, look, we're in his answer was, we, you know, we're owned by an American company, so it's quarterly reporting for the stock market, and that's we just work quarter to quarter. I thought, gosh, that feels like such an opportunity. If you don't have a view of where you're going, you know, it's kind of that Winnie the is it Winnie the Pooh? No, is there Alice in Wonderland? That's right, it's Alice in Wonderland. Something along the lines of if you don't know where you're going, how do you get there? And so I thought, kind of naively, well, look, if I come on board, I could probably I can probably change this. Um, and so I got on board and then realised that the there was a CEO for Dynamic Controls and then there was um, this MD for Australasia for the parent company. And I realised that there was quite a lot that was disconnected and culturally not great about where the organisation was at. And it was only so far I could go with that. And I was getting to that point of realising after about a year or so that actually I can try to change things, even at the GM operations level, all I like. But until I'm the CEO, there's a limit to how far I can go with that. You can work bottom up, but if, if you haven't got all the, you know, you hand around everything, then it gets a bit messy. And so then fortunately, the CEO decided he wanted to go and do something else. And then the MD decided he needed to go somewhere else. And partly, I think the, the organization decided it was a good idea for him to go somewhere else. And so I ended up in a situation of a little bit like when I was in that quality management role of applying for the CEO role with an American head office leadership applying through to that. And um, that I was not going to be the right person because I hadn't been there long enough and they had a look around for a number of other people and eventually I kind of wore them down <laughs> like, like previously and I was persistent and a bit blagged a wee bit, I think. But I figured I could do this better than anyone because I, I understood what was needed and how to get there and I knew from previous experience how to change a culture and how to be part of that. And so I was really quite passionate about it. And that thing from my interview in terms of having direction and where the company was going, I really felt I could actually bring that to life now if I had that role. And so anyway, eventually they gave it to me. And then I spent the next 10 years um, in the CEO role at Dynamic Controls. And that was amazing because we got to work with people whose you know, lives were incredibly different from, from mine and many of the people at work because they, they lived in wheelchairs and make a difference in terms of how that life was. And through that journey, we had to uh, convince others around us that it was really important to understand people's lives and, if you like, their emotional drivers as well as technical drivers in order to be able to really make a difference and innovate. And so on that journey, we learned quite a lot about uh, design thinking as and, and human-centered design, which you would think would be obvious in that kind of space, but it really wasn't. And in doing that, we connected with Jade Software, and uh, they had a very good experienced um UX team or user experience team who helped us 
both in New Zealand and then we took one of their key team members to the US with us to help us bring the sort of parent company team or sister company teams you know, on the journey with us. And so it was through that I thought, oh, you know, this, I really like the way Jade think and work. When the opportunity came up um, when Jade was looking for, after separating logistics from Jade Software, they were looking for a new CEO for Jade Software. I thought, actually, yeah, this would be great. And um, and I could see that um, I really liked that what I'd seen of the culture of the organization. And I, I liked the type of work that they did and the technology angle. And I liked the look of the board and applied and then was successful at, at, at picking that up. Yeah, so it was really quite a cool sort of connected journey, if you like, to get to where I am now. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that I found, there's lots interesting in there, Charlotte, but one of the things that I found interesting, again, was that piece around, I'm going to apply for the role, I'm going to put myself forward. Uh, I may not have all, necessarily all the experience that somebody else hmm. thinks that I need, but I believe I've got the potential to do it. I believe that I can. And I find quite often women will look at roles, will look at opportunities and will say, look, I, th- I think I could maybe do that, but I'm not sure if I haven't experienced enough. And even if they put their hand up, if they get that first knockback that says, look, no, I don't think you're ready, they'll say, okay, fine. Whereas you persisted on and you just, actually, I think I can do this. What kind of gave you that that belief and, and drive to persist? If ever somebody says, no, you can't do something to me, it tends to wind me up. <laughs> so that's an unhelpful and helpful characteristic depending on, on the situation. <laughs> And so I will tend to do something anyway and apologize afterwards. But in order to, if I know that something's doable, I tend to do that. So I, so I tend to be persistent, particularly if someone puts a roadblock up that just winds me up more. But, but also, I think I really felt like I'd learnt, I knew that technically I was strong in terms of operations, in terms of an organisation operationally, but I felt that also through my previous experience, I'd developed, a, obviously had good experience with sales, but I'd developed a good understanding of products and product creation. So, well, or I should say customer-centred design in a sense. So through, this sounds a bit flaky, but in packaging, you're working with FMCG companies, so fast-moving consumer goods, and they are wanting you to create packaging for maybe cheese um, or packaging for potato chips. And you go, oh, well, that's straightforward. They just want to, here's a picture of a piece of cheese and you print it and that's the end of it. But actually, we got to know through that process, I got to know people who were those product managers who were designing these products. And the way they went about it wasn't just to go, oh, somebody wants grated cheese because it's convenient. They actually went and did research to understand what were the emotional drivers that led to people thinking that they that the answer to that emotional need was grated cheese. And, and that just that fired me up so much understanding that. So it wasn't actually, for example, about grated cheese being convenient. It was about actually grated cheese creates harmony because I want my kids to eat broccoli, but they won't. But the only way I can get them to do that is to put cheese on top. And actually grated cheese is that in a bag is my little bag of harmony that I can add to all the horrible vegetables the kids don't want to eat. Oh, wow, that's really powerful, that emotional driver. And actually that's what then drives the innovation and makes it, makes it sticky, makes it valuable. So that side of things, I, I really felt that we could bring to what we were, to what was otherwise a very um, tactical way of working in the wheelchair business. So, so I felt that was felt that quite strongly. And then the other one was that I really, I felt a, a strong understanding of the culture required to change to be that thing. 
And it was obvious that we had uh, some really clever people in the business. Lots of engineers who were very clever, but they really had no connection and no understanding of the end user's journey. And so how could they possibly make a difference in those lives or even feel good about making a difference in those lives if they didn't understand that? So how do we take them on the journey to understand? And they need to be culturally ripe or ready to wanting to understand. So you have to sort of get people ready to, and at the same time, you know, develop an ability to connect with the end users in, in a meaningful way and sort of bring that together. So that that's what sort of, I felt like I had the component pieces not to just be cross the T's and dot the I's general manager or CEO in a very basic way, but to actually take it to that next level, just because of what, I, what I'd seen done with my previous managing director and what I'd learned from also customers. And mm, I can hear in you, it, there was obviously that that vision of how to make it better and where you wanted to take the company, but also that passion coming through really strongly. And that I can imagine is probably infectious in terms of bringing people with you as well. But did make me laugh there telling that story. Grated cheese, definitely harmony in my household with three kids who <laughs> love their grated cheese on their pasta. So I'm, I'm with you there. You've already talked about some of the challenges and I'm guessing along the way it hasn't been smooth sailing at all times. What have been some of your toughest career challenges or moments? I think of two in particular. One was was early on and I, I didn't deal with it well and so then it's coloured my approach ever since, which was I had uh, a couple of several manufacturing teams and one of those manufacturing teams, the leader for it was someone who was very technically experienced but was really quite a bully and and the way he behaved I tried to work around and yet I was his leader so really I should have been head-on dealing with it and so I was a bit conflict diverse about it basically and so and I, I think I really I didn't realize that I could maybe ask people about how to deal with it outside the organization because everyone in the organization didn't really seem to know how to deal with it either so I learnt through that. So what happened then was what I did instead was, given the the opportunity, I recommended him to move on to another team not led by me, which was just really an abdication. And then he continued in that way of working for many years to come. And I always felt bad for one that I had abdicated responsibility, not dealt with that, and then he'd gone on to be impactful for other people for all that time. And then, and two, that realisation that, you know, I really must look external for advice. Don't think you can get it all internally, so you have to look outside. That's one that's then coloured both my tolerance for that type of behaviour and also how I expect myself and then and, and to help others to behave when they come across it. So that's one. The other one was that a realisation that just because you're right doesn't make you right. And it's always known that to a degree, but it's one of those, we ended up in a situation where, in my last role, where... Uh, the parent organisation went into a very difficult situation with the Food and Drug Administration in the US and that coloured their mindset on a whole lot of things and it took, that, that in itself taught me a lot about leadership and lack of leadership and, and what can what some of the perils of that are. And as a consequence of that, there was a situation that arose where because of this kind of spiralling mindset there, they came to a conclusion that our product needed to go through a recall in the US we could show all the data you liked that demonstrated that was absolutely not true and we could not get their heads around it. And even through the CEO, we could not get their heads around it because he felt compromised and so he had to stand back. So we couldn't get them to understand. And then they 
pulled the recall with the, they they you know announced the recall to the FDA, and then two days later, they finally looked seriously at our data and called up and said, "Oh my gosh, you're right." <laughs> oh my god! And then so then we spent the next several years just taking a, a huge financial hit and a reputational hit at least in the US, as a consequence of that. And it was really hard on my people and just very hard for the team, ran for quite some time. And so that reinforced that whole thing is that a little bit like that cultural piece is being right about something, about how, you know, how something is not working or something's not right or being even having the data to prove that it doesn't make you right. It's really, really, really have to find a way to get inside people's heads and help them to understand that. And I think in that case, maybe distance didn't help in terms of getting inside their heads and, and really helping them, particularly when their heads were spinning anyway. But being right in itself is not enough. You, you really have to connect with people, understand where they're coming from, and then help lead them to, maybe your right isn't right, but in, in, in helping to lead them that way, maybe you'll see, get a different perspective on the way. You know, being right in itself is not enough. And I keep trying to also make sure my kids understand that. <laughs> As you can imagine, some of those dinner time conversations go. Yes, absolutely. I can. And it kind of comes back to, again, those skills around influence, which are important from kind of day one in the workplace, but are not necessarily something that we're taught at school no. or university. But, yeah, but are vitally important. So, Charlotte, the title for this podcast is The Female Career. And, you know, I'm conscious even probably from doing your maths and physics degree, there probably weren't that many women around doing it with you, I'm guessing. And in the world of technology, actually, there's still not women are still the minority. What have been some of the challenges and obstacles that you might have faced as a woman in your career? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, packaging was very much a male-dominated sort of a space, and then, as you say, into um, other technology sort of things as well. But I think I've always, I've never really seen that particularly as an issue. I suppose I've just like I'm, my parents were never big on obstacles. It was like, she can do it. Just, yeah, just go on and do it. And so I was never brought up to think of obstacles. And I think if you focus on obstacles and you get, it's a bit like if you're cycling between two buses, if you focus on the bus, then you're going to hit it. But if you focus on the gap, you'll sail on through generally. And I suppose that's been my, a little bit of my mantra is focus on where you want to get to. Don't worry about the things on the side. It's a bit like don't focus on your competitor or you just get drawn into that as well. Focus on where you want to get to and the other things peel away as you move through them by and large. Having said that, I remember when I first, in particular, when I first went into sales and the rest of the, the team were all guys. And it was interesting standing there one time in a meeting and it was clear that the leader of the organisation was describing a situation and it was clear that the guys and I, none of us really quite understood it. But the guys were all acting like they did. So I asked the question, I was like, hang on a minute, but why is that? And, and could you explain that piece to me? And the leader was like, oh, somebody doesn't understand. Oh, okay. And he started to explain, but the guys were all standing there nodding. He's like, oh, yes, of course we understand. Yes, no, we're all good. And so it was that kind of the, that whole thing of just like bluffing their way through it and having that pride to stand in the way of them understanding something. And so one, the realisation that people did do that and that actually that created, that put me on the outside. So recognising I was on the outside is one thing and then going, but okay, but I'm learning more because I'm asking the questions. And it actually puts me in a better place for the customer because I'm more inclined to ask questions than to just accept what I'm hearing. So that's a good thing. And I can feel like I value, have always valued my slightly outside perspective as being part of 
my ability to ask why or what if. I think, yes, there have been things which give you pause for thinking, huh, I can see there's a bit of a club thing going on here, but my advantage in that is, if I want to take it, is to be that, that external voice of challenge and to you know, enjoy the benefit of that. Mm, and so recognising, therefore, the value and the opportunity of being different and having that different perspective. Yeah, great. Yeah. We've talked a bit about some of the challenges. What about some of, what have been some of your proudest career moments? Oh, I would have to say they're mostly moments associated with, with unlocking people in some way. And I suppose that's the piece that really gives me the, the buzz in what I do is one way or another unlocking people to be able to achieve something, whether it's a commercial goal or some other type of goal. And so when I think of those kind of proud moments, I th- one example was, I think, back to a group of people who were working in a factory environment on something where there was no sort of a trade or apprenticeship to it. It was a relatively simple job. It didn't really require much in term, it didn't require much in the way of secondary education even in order to do it. Um, so these were good people doing a good job, but they really didn't rate themselves in terms of their ability to do anything beyond just this job. And anyway, so we were trying to figure out how do we get people thinking about how to really engage with their environment and learn how to do a continuous improvement approach to things. So we got this group of people, a small group from our subset, to to work on this whole thing around one of the things they were frustrated about was that their workplace was a bit of a mess. So we got them to work together on how to change that and what they could influence versus what they couldn't and work on the things they actually could influence and could control. And through that, they came up with some really great ideas that they implemented and got a lot of recognition from the rest of their people from, you know, about, which was fantastic. But the coolest thing was seeing, one, seeing them get up and present what they'd found and then what they'd done and become so what of that, presenting that to the rest of the organisation and seeing how, how they, they, how scared they were of doing that, but knowing that they'd done something good and then, and then at the other side of it going, oh my gosh, we just did that. And then we thought, actually, this is so cool. They were, they were, some of them said, oh, I'd love for my family to see what I've done. So we got their families in and we gave them a tour of it and then we had the guys take them through that same presentation and just how they lit up and how their families lit up, that pride in themselves and their families pride in them, that just still brings goosebumps to my arms. So for me, that's something which is like wherever I can, wherever it makes sense to recreate that or help people either at an individual level or a team level to realise that they can, that gives me a buzz. Yeah, absolutely. And it almost goes a little bit back to that cheese example that we are talking about. Is what's the emotion underneath mm. that you need to tap into? Is it something around pride or yeah. that goes underneath? And what I love particularly about the first story that you told, it was about not imposing a solution, but instead looking for people to come up with the solutions that, that they think would work best because they probably know better than anybody else and getting them to think, what actually can I influence? And just that wonderful pride then of showing that they could make a difference. Yes, super stories. Thanks, Charlotte. And where do you see your career now heading in the future? I'm not really sure um, because I had this, this, this path I charted, as I mentioned, quite some time back and I feel like I've got to the end of that. <laughs> and I haven't really made a, uh, enough time to figure out the, the next step. So I'm not really sure at the moment. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing right now. But I think always for me, fixing things and bringing things you know, back to a position of, if you like, glory in some sort of way or a way with, in particular where they're making a real difference and the customers feel like, wow, this is amazing. And the people working on that feel like, gosh, I, 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 it was so worth getting out of bed today. Doing that 
really spins my wheels. And that's something which I find is actually hard to do in any way except hands-on. Like we touched on earlier on, on a couple of um, boards, uh, some wonderful boards. And if I think particularly of, say, a New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, awesome board, awesome organisation, just great people. You know, I just I can't speak highly enough of it. It's such a privilege to be on that board and see their journey and be part of that. And so it's great to be able to be an advisor and, and a guide into someone else's journey. But there's nothing quite as thrilling or as satisfying as actually being hands-on with it for me. I'm not sure. Maybe it's more of the same. But I also get bored easily. So it's kind of, but it's more of the same, the right thing to do next. So I'm not really certain, but I do love making a difference like this. And um, so that will feature some, somewhere. Mm, I can hear that coming through. And one last question there, Charlotte. What career advice would you have for other women? I think just from my experience, I would say a couple of things. One would be first aim high um, because anywhere along the way towards that high is going to be great. And I figure if I hadn't aimed to be an astronaut and charted that sort of path, I may not have done the things that I wanted to do that then allowed me other options, which probably brings me to a second point is always have options um, so that you're ready to take advantage of opportunities when they come up. So And maybe that's because I'm a bit of a generalist, but I think New Zealand is a great place to be a generalist. And there are plenty of places around the world where you can be a complete specialist. But in New Zealand, you actually get the opportunity to be a generalist. And then I think that that serves you well when you then do work either overseas or with overseas teams because you have a unique ability to connect dots and hybridise ideas in ways that perhaps others don't because they're very in a very deep, narrow Thinking. So, so New Zealand, I think we have those kind of options. So always make, for me, always have options. So you really take advantage of things and, and take risks and make yourself uncomfortable. And, but take a risk knowing that, you, that part of that taking that risk is you're going to back yourself. And, some, and sometimes it's, it's okay to, you know, fake it till you make it. That's, uh, I've, I've used that once before and somebody said, oh, I really don't think that's it's not very authentic. But it's not in a way, but sometimes it's a way of just tricking yourself into shutting down those little voices of doubt and going, you know what, I can do this and I'm, I'm going to smash it out there. And then when it lands on your plate, like, oh, my God, that worked. Oh, my God, I'm really uncomfortable now. But actually, that's the thrill. And then get on with it. Wonderful advice. Super advice. Thank you, Charlotte. It's been such a pleasure for me to uh, to speak to you today. And um, I loved, you know, hearing that career journey all the way through from those dreams of being an astronaut, but right through to hearing some of the, the challenges that you faced along the way, but that wonderful kind of human-centred, custom-focused, fundamentally all about the people approach that you take. So thank you so much for sharing the journey today. Thanks very much, and I really appreciate the opportunity. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.